You're listening to Endgame with Kyla Brettle and Rob Law, a podcast about our hearts and minds on climate change. Climate change can make you feel like a speck of a thing, like a pebble on a shore. But there's nothing we can do to make a difference to this oncoming wave and that getting upset about it won't do anyone any good. It's little wonder that most of us push it away and out of our hearts and minds, frame it as an issue we're very concerned about and then focus on other things. The predictions are dire about what your children are going to face. No! You're already feeling it on the planet. No! Biodiversity is collapsing. No! New heights of global heating. No! Oceans are overfished and choking with plastic waste. No! Apocalyptic fires and floods, cyclones and hurricanes are increasingly the new normal. No! To put it simply, the state of the planet is broken. But what happens when we make an emotional connection with the climate crisis and let it into our lives, you know, embrace the cactus? The worry is, of course, the whole thing could become a bit overwhelming and you can lose sight of which way's up. It's the enormity of it, because everything, everything that you hold dear, everything that you love, is threatened by this. It's kind of all-encompassing. If you think about the enormity of the challenge, of everything that needs to be done, of all the variables, of everything that's at stake, you get a kind of um, psychic vertigo, which is not good for you. Wow. That splits you right down the middle and puts you back together again, over and over again. Over and over again. Can you hear the sea? Dear me, if you put a shell to your ear, you can hear the sea. I just girl, I ask my mother, what will I be? Will I be? I mean, it completely undermines our reality. Ladies and gentlemen, this is real. It is not a mere dream. The other potential hazard is that it could transform you into someone you don't want to be. Seeing the light can be almost as dangerous as peering into the dark. The bear! And you could turn into one of those people everyone avoids at parties, who can't let go for a moment and is constantly trying to convert everyone around them, getting up people's noses by telling them how to live their lives. Do you see the light? What light? Have you seen the light? Yes! You know, I do raise it tentatively with, for example, the other mums of the kids at my kids' school. You know, I don't want to be somebody, oh, my God, she's like a climate zealot. <laughs> you know, for her yeah. to tell her kid. I will honour Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. I will live in the past, the present and the future. I will not shut out the lessons that they teach. 
But the bottom line, I guess, is that we just don't really have the option of ignoring climate change forever. The impacts are happening around us and will get worse, even if humanity can manage to turn this story around. So all of us, you, me, them, everybody, will face a cactus at some point. And the question is, how close does it need to be before we make it personal? In this episode of Endgame, taking climate change to heart and what happens once we do. Now try taking a nice deep breath. And try putting one hand on your chest and one hand on your abdomen. And just put some gentle pressure. And just let some nice deep breaths come in and out. Some gentle pressure. Eyes open or eyes closed, whatever works for you. Usually it's when you're not thinking about it that it does it really well. Yeah, that was good. It's a big leap. Yeah. Yeah. I, love, I love the little ripples. <laughs> Sometimes the smaller ones go further. Kyla Bredel and I live on different creeks on the outskirts of the small country town of Castlemaine in central Victoria, Australia. It's on the lands of the Jar Jar Wurrung, and it was the heart of the colonial gold rush in the 1850s. The catalyst for Endgame stemmed from an incident back in November 2019, though we didn't know each other at the time. I remember walking into town that night, my nostrils are filled with smoke and dust as I look up at the orange-red sky and perhaps for the first time have this sense that a climate-changed future has arrived. Hundreds of kilometres away, fires are raging across the country in what would become known as the Black Summer bushfires after one of the worst droughts we've experienced. But it was also a time where momentum for change felt unstoppable. Actions and movements were snowballing everywhere. I'm Malou, and um, this is Harriet, and Callum's not here, unfortunately. Our little town is the home of the school strike movement in Australia. Three local teenagers were among the first followers of Greta Thunberg. Their activism spiralling out and drawing Australia in to this incredible globally networked youth movement. Thousands of people around Australia now know about the awesome kids from Castlemaine. Now we need to show them that the adults in Castlemaine are just as awesome and that we've made climate change the number one priority by declaring a climate emergency. On this particular night, I make my way into the rooms of our local council, with many other locals, feeling inspired and wanting our kids to be proud of us. In a country where political leaders have spent decades denying the reality of climate change, people here are optimistic that there may actually be something within our power and influence to change by coming together and that we're all part of this larger process of change now underway. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. Um, we'll a petition to declare a climate emergency is being tabled. It's been gathered over many months of town hall meetings, market stalls, conversations and rallies, and is riding high off the back of councils right across the country declaring climate emergencies. We waited patiently through local planning applications and rezoning requests. Okay, I've got an announcement to make about the petition, and I want you to hear me all the way through this announcement. This is our local mayor at the time, Bromham Matchin herself an advocate for the declaration, 
And so no one was expecting what she said next. The announcement is that we cannot accept this as a petition under our local laws. A technicality, an old law that meant electronic signatures are not valid in a council petition. And so council were not able to declare a climate emergency on this night and moved on to other business. Agree. Agitation and then, oh, shit, it's useless. Take it easy, Pat. What actually we call a petition is not officially a petition. <sighs> yeah, it was, it was pretty tough. Afterwards, everyone sort of milled around outside in complete outrage and, and dismay about what had just happened. There was a lot of frustration. You know, weren't, weren't sure if the whole thing had just sort of fallen off a cliff or what it all meant. Also some bewilderment. And dollars, yeah, I was, I was struggling. Feelings of, oh, how did we, how did we overlook this? How did this happen? Um, it's in these moments where you just think we're stuffed. How are humans ever going to bloody deal with this enormous problem of climate change when there's just so much getting in the way? Not even the big stuff of money and power, but the small and trivial blocks that pop up out of nowhere. At some point in time, and I don't know when it was, I got quite invested in this idea of declaring an emergency because I wasn't on that page to begin with. And now that it hasn't happened, I'm feeling this strange sense of rage. I'd worked on climate change for almost 20 years. It was not a new thing to step into. But when the climate emergency petition fell over that night, something inside me shifted. Three. Can you hear me on number two? I can hear you on number two. Phone off? It's too far away. No one will call yeah, you. No one's, no one's going to call me anyway. <laughs> it was not long after this event that Kyla Bredel and I met. Recording now? Yeah. Yeah. We started talking about how facing up to this big, confronting, gargantuan beast that is the climate crisis is also changing us as individuals, how we live with each other and our relationship with the world. So we decided to make a podcast as a way to look both inwards inside ourselves, but also outwards from the vantage point of our small town and track the relationships between small and big things that shape our future. The aftershocks of the student strike movement in Australia seem to reverberate out from our town, triggering climate action like a network of falling dominoes. Nearly a thousand kilometres away, in the space of a moment, it changed the life of Australian social researcher and author, Dr Rebecca Huntley. So she wakes up, it's like 5am. And I'm a bit of an early riser, mainly because I've got a house full of loud children that stillness before everything starts up. I had a coffee and turned on the TV and was watching, I think it was the second student's climate strike. Thousands of school students have staged protests around the country. The younger generation have had enough. And she sees images of young people with handmade signs, you're burning our future. A lot of those young men and women are not much older than my eldest daughter, who's 12. We want the government to publicly recognise... And, you know, watching the very earnest, I think, plea to the older generation to do something. We're children. We're 15. We can't vote or run a major business or buy solar panels and electric cars. If the window of opportunity to do something to prevent these terrifying feedback loops and tipping is closing, we're hardly going to be old enough to do anything major about it ourselves before the window is closed. It's the adults that have to do something urgently. 
It really felt at that moment that they were speaking directly to me. Demanding greater And it's like a, like a fundamental shift in the way she understood herself in the world. And, you know, she describes it as a, as a physical sensation, as if like her vital organs had shifted about inside her body. This was really an emotional, ethical connection to climate change, which kind of triggered a range of decisions in my personal and professional life, which saw it kind of reorient towards really focusing on trying to make a contribution to the climate change movement. And it's now grown to include 1.4 million angry and noisy students. So it was a really quite a, a lot to a lot to have to handle before the caffeine kicks in one morning, but it was really, it was a turning point. Rebecca Huntley is speaking there with Robert McLean on Climate Conversations, and she goes on to explain how, after this event, she set out to write a book exploring what turns us on and also away from acting like climate change really matters. I thought, I don't need to change my profession or change my life dramatically to do anything about climate change. I can kind of reorient my professional life towards solving what is really, I mean, at some level, a very exciting and challenging professional problem, which also just happens to matter deeply to me personally. So in the book, Rebecca Huntley looks at the world and society through the lens of a social researcher. It's my job to find out what Australians are thinking and feeling about pretty much anything. What I really am is... I'm Rebecca Huntley and I'm a social researcher. Bourgeois, straight, middle-class, able-bodied woman and this is what I think. My job is to get lots of information about people, generalise about them, aggregate, classify. She conducts surveys and focus groups with people like you and me. I go into people's homes, I sit in their kitchens, their lounge rooms, their backyards and their sheds, and I listen to them talk about their lives. Why people feel the way they do about climate change is informed by a whole range of other things, you know, where they've grown up, how they've been raised, to some extent their gender, certainly their generation, to some extent their ethnic background. And so our climate attitudes are absolutely informed by those broader political, cultural, social, economic views. Yes. No! The roots of our attitudes towards climate change clearly run deep. Our aversion to thinking about it rationally is ingrained in the very systems that underpin global human society. So one of the reasons it's so difficult to take the climate crisis to heart is that thinking about it takes us uncomfortably close to re-evaluating all this stuff we thought we had sorted. Ways of understanding what it is we do on this planet, how we measure our success and what makes our lives feel meaningful and important. This is interpersonal neurobiologist Dan Siegel. The brain is extremely sensitive to the cultural messages you get. And the contemporary cultural message we've gotten is that the self is separate. Yes. And it's all about this self getting as much stuff for this self as possible. The extinction yes. of much of the natural, natural world, world 
It's all and my parents had all be told, Danny, it's about you. Get a big bank account, get a big car, yeah. get a big house. What do I care if I pollute it and destroy and it? All you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. Yeah. Get a big this, get a big that. The oceans around my country, what do I care if I pollute them? Yes. And I'm gonna make more money. So to me, this picture is humanity's selfie in these early days of the 21st century. And we are the first generation to see it. That's the system we're in of contemporary culture. Our cognitive function tends to lock in that worldview and it takes a lot of disturbing yes. to crack it open and, and make yourself open anew. Author and regenerative agriculturalist, Charles Massey. And uh, I think anyone that's made that shift, which is walking against the grain of the most dominant power in society, the big multinationals, your peers, your Department of Agriculture, your universities, the whole thing, you're taking on an, an enormous establishment to make this shift. It's, it takes a lot of courage, actually. Another reason that makes it hard to look at climate change for long is that it reminds us of our own death. And our tried and true method of dealing with mortality gets transferred to climate change. Terror management theorist Sheldon Solomon. We distract ourselves. The government insists it is taking real action on climate change. Now, Spirit, tell me. Yes. What man that was whom we saw lying dead. Uh, he's already denied any links between global warming and this unprecedented crisis. Tranquilized by the trivial. We watch TV or Netflix or we go shopping, anything to uh, take our mind off the fact that we're mortal creatures. And then there's all the little stuff, the things we tell ourselves day to day that make the whole trouble of climate change seem further away than what it really is. A myriad of tiny, seemingly inconsequential assumptions we make that psychologists refer to as cognitive biases. It's a game that our brain plays on us. There are literally hundreds of these biases. Everything from the confirmation bias, where we actively seek out evidence that supports what we already believe, through to what neuroscientist Tali Sharot describes as the optimism bias. So the optimism bias is our tendency to overestimate our likelihood of encountering positive events in our lives and underestimating our likelihood of encountering negative events in our lives. So this could be thinking that maybe climate change isn't as bad as everybody says that it is, or it might be a problem for those people over there, but not so much for me here. Our expectations are not based on evidence. That's the important point. Psychologist Robert Gifford describes some of these barriers as dragons of inaction, the kind of barriers that prevent us from acting in ways that sync up with what we know to be true. If you ask me what are some of the most common ones, I would say that feeling that I'm only one person is one of the biggest ones. We call it lack of perceived behavioral control. Uh, another one is what I call perceived inequity, uh, which essentially is why should I stop driving, for example, if other people are going to keep driving. One that is for some people a problem is what I call environmental numbness, which is sort of like, well, I've heard that message many times, like an ad on TV or something, and so I've basically tuned out. Not that I don't care anymore, but I just have stopped listening to that message because I've heard it enough already. So we still catch ourselves thinking that everything will be okay. It's a mild autumn day. The skies are blue. 
I can hear birds, smell the wet soil, and there's fruit growing on the trees. And it's really hard to imagine anything different. And it's only been two years since the black summer bushfires. But of course, these mental barriers or biases aren't completely useless. They also help us cope and exist in a kind of functional denial. Part of what it means to be mentally healthy, in other words, might be that you're able to take in, you know, distressing information, information about threats or dangers, that you don't ignore that information, but that you don't let yourself get overwhelmed by that information. So people with mild depression are a bit more realistic in their expectations than healthy individuals. Part of being mentally healthy might involve looking at the world through rose-tinted glasses. So it's kind of like in many varied and really quite interesting ways. We short circuit when it comes to facing climate change directly, which goes some distance towards explaining why we see the threat, yet we struggle to act. That 80% of Australians are concerned about climate change, but here we are, caught motionless like a kangaroo in the headlights. But what happens when the reality of a climate change world gets so close and visceral that we can smell the smoke? At which point do we become emotionally invested? The Australian Black Summer fires at the end of 2019 were a taste of what will punctuate the lives of those who are young people now. The data climate change. All the way to the central coast, nine blazes reached emergency warning level today. The Australian east coast was lit up, 17 million hectares burnt, over a billion animals killed, lives destroyed. I wasn't directly impacted by the fires, but sickened by the horror and devastation that unfolded across my screens. I remember thinking that surely this would trigger a turning point in my country's response to the climate crisis. Fucking just fucking fuck the houses, man. I've never seen anything like it. An apocalypse, a nightmare, and like looking into the gates of hell. Get into the water, it's chaos. After the Black Summer fires, Rebecca Huntley conducted a research project to determine whether the fires had shifted public attitudes towards climate change and taking climate action. In those focus groups, we looked at people across Australia that broadly fitted into what we would describe as kind of generally concerned, cautious on climate change, so thought we needed to make the transition to renewable energy, but slowly, and people who might be a bit more disengaged and dismissive. And so we already knew about them, so we were wondering how they felt about the fires. And what we found is that largely all the fires made them do is 
is double down on their already existing position. <laughs> <laughs> so it hadn't shifted them. It, what it had done, though, it, the people who were concerned about climate change, it had made them more concerned. And there were some people who were, oh, yeah, this is a real, you know, this is a real moment where I have to get more active. Individual weather events, even really catastrophic ones like that, it's been proven overseas that they don't shift large groups of people all of a sudden. Over time, lots of them one after the other might, but individual events, it's just too much. And that's probably unrealistic to think that they will. Wow, that splits you right down the middle and puts you back together again, over and over again. What shifts you from being intellectually aware of something and then it, it going deeper? I work in communications. I would love it if I could manipulate that moment. But I actually don't think you can. I think it's really a personal moment that can't be manipulated. This is Melanie Scaife. She's a friend of mine and lives locally in Malden where she runs a writing and editing business. Excellent. So one for you, one for me, one for Foxy. Sunglasses. My own kind of head-cracking moment <laughs> is kind of a bit random, but it happened. Baiters. Two years ago, two summers ago, you know, in Castlemaine, Malden, it was a really hot summer, uncharacteristically hot. You know, I kind of felt, just felt wrong. And on this day, the power's out, so not even a fan to call them. And Frankie was a little baby at the time and just couldn't sleep in the heat. We live in a typical kind of ramshackle miners' cottage. You know, you can see daylight through the weatherboards. It felt like 50 degrees in the house. So she jumps into the car, turns up the air conditioning and drives around aimlessly for like two hours. And really became aware of the driving and of the emissions and that I was adding to the problem. I finally got it. There's the intellectual, kind of conceptual, abstract idea, and then there's this head crack. The gut-wrenching, emotional moment. And once you've had that moment, there's no turning back because you get it. You feel it in your guts and it's terrifying. And as a mother, and you just want to protect your child. And this is all mother of, of threats to your child. This is something you can't just stand out, let it, let it go. You, you've got to rise up and do something. This is why I am here. As a mum who loves her daughter, and is terrified for her future. And I can assure you I'm not alone. <sighs> Seatbelts, everyone. Otherwise, you're going to niggle. 
Despite the impediments, people in our town and all over the world are embracing the cactus, making this emotional connection between climate change, themselves, and what they love. Well, I hope you have. Well, we haven't got his seatbelt. Well, you're his seatbelt. You need to really hang on to him. It's your job to look after Foxy. It's my job to look after you. But where do you start? What happens once all this stuff is out of the box? Is any action you take going to make any difference to anyone or anything other than yourself? This is what Melanie Scaife asked when she woke up the next day not having much of a plan other than to put one foot in front of the other. Well, I went crazy, really. I just, I, I said, we're, we're getting solar panels. I, I appreciate not everyone can just run out and get solar panels. It's a, it's a fair investment. But off we went. We got solar panels. Melanie started changing the way they did things at home. It's an important step and actually really difficult in a banal kind of way. I started religiously kind of recycling the soft plastics and, yes, the keep cups and all those kind of little things that you can do. She moved on to interrogating her finances, increasing her donations to climate action campaigns and following the money on her superannuation or pension fund. And was horrified to see that they were invested in mining companies that had shares in Murdoch Press. You know, horrors, horrors. (laughs) Got rid of that one. All this took Melanie way outside her comfort zone and to the realisation that the situation called for more than doing what she could manage at home. Been to, I don't know, four or five climate marches since that head-cracking moment. I also kind of uncharacteristically joined a community group, climate action group. I'm not, I'm not a group player normally. Anyway, I kind of interrogated my life and looked at everything I could actually do, really as, a, as a, a coping mechanism, because otherwise I would just slip into despair or, or depression. Um, I mean, I think the truth is I, I can't protect my child, actually, from climate change by myself. <laughs> um, but I still want to, you know, you'd like to think that if, if, if we all do our bit, if we all join together, then we've got a chance. Melanie, uh, I'll give you a warning at the four-minute mark, which means you've got one minute left to speak. You'll hear the bell go off. Okay, thank you. Melanie soon found herself delivering a speech in front of our local council. This was a few weeks after the original petition to declare a climate emergency had failed, opening up the floodgates of locals ready to tell council what we needed to do about the crisis. Do more. Do it more quickly. Do it together. Join with over 75 local government authorities in Australia which have already declared the climate emergency. We are totally unprepared to meet the health impacts of climate change in our shire. We might in the future be held responsible for not taking action. And councillors soon found themselves sitting through 12 hours of five-minute speeches from local environmentalists, doctors, psychologists... The Indigenous young people that are currently out of First Nations youth... School kids, church groups, farmers, disability workers. Campbell's Creek Landcare Group. Castlemaine Secondary College has always had a. All making their emotional plea. It's impossible to even walk in Forest Street for many months of the year. If we can heal our relationship with the land by being connected to it, we change everything. Start a citizens' assembly. We need to increase cultural burns. Hard decisions must be made that prioritise a resilient localised food system above all else. It was a day where climate change felt like it was finding its place in our local imagination. 
as each person described the unique ways it was affecting their own life and way of living here in this town. Summer coming on, there is a palpable sense in the community of rising anxiety. When there's an emergency, we do simulation role play practicing. And I sit in meetings at the hospital, it's at the top of the hill, looking over the vegetation of the town, thinking of heat rising and wondering if watching a fire racing up towards the building could be anything other than terrifying. It was no longer about scientific facts or far-off places, but it was about the dying box ironbark forests up on the hill, or the water disappearing from our creeks, or the vulnerable people in our town, or even just the simple psychological benefits of leaders acknowledging our situation. Councillors, questions? Are you, are you asking me whether I think people will be stressed because we declare an emergency? Uh, I think everyone's stressed anyway. Soon after this marathon session, the community found itself back in the council chambers as Councillor Matchin presented a motion to declare a climate emergency. At the time, I was listening into the debate on my phone, pacing back and forth on my front veranda. From that moment a month before, when the petition had first failed, the bushfires had continued to get worse. And there was this sense for so many of us that everything hung on this moment. I remember sitting next to one of the Central Victorian Climate Action CVCA members and, you know, they've been around doing this fionks and I didn't know this person well but she seemed like someone who is normally very contained and with tears in her eyes. Um, and then she followed up by saying, there's just been so few wins. It was finally time for the vote. The declaration passed, six votes to one. For our children, school strikers, who have asked that we declare a climate emergency, yes, this is for you. Rob, what did you do after the declaration of a climate emergency? I got quite teary and went around to my wife, who just looked at me and knew that it must have meant that it passed. Yeah, that moment was pretty powerful, and then, and then I kind of relaxed a lot of bit after that, to be honest. So I think the declaration became, you know, that, that point in time where we all had a chance to collectively acknowledge and then we'll work out what comes next later. I'm just standing down at the creek at the back of my house, Campbell's Creek. My kids were two and five at the moment. They come down here every day and throw sticks in the creek and chase each other up mounds of dirt and climb over tree trunks. This 30 or 40 years ago just wasn't here. It was just a completely denuded landscape. A few committed local people have spent you know the last two decades revegetating and now there's stands of yellow gums and yellow boxes with the silver and black wattles and then more and more understory gradually appearing and occasionally i don't think it'll be tonight but occasionally i see a platypus down here in this creek as well as a long-necked turtle one of the things i love about being down here is that it's it reminds me about what 
we're capable of, what we're capable of when we come together and put our minds to it to repair landscapes and to do gestures of environmental good. While in the scheme of things, any kind of climate action our little town takes is a pebble on the shore of what needs to be done, it makes us part of a global wave of people caring and acting like it really matters. When things are this unstable, a person's determination, how they choose to invest their energy in their heart-mind, can have much more effect on the larger picture than we're accustomed to think. So I find it a very exciting time to be alive, if somewhat wearing emotionally. <laughs> Eco-philosopher Joanna Macy and others are calling this period that we're in now as the Great Turning, a period of transformational change to the planet and human society, happening whether we like it or not. We don't know whether we're going to make this. We are undergoing a species-level rite of passage right now. Author of Designing Regenerative Cultures, Daniel Val. And rites of passage mean that you, you're not allowed to know whether you're going to make it, otherwise they don't work. Whatever we want to call this period of transition, it's also a time of immense possibility that's created through this uncertainty. When small stones can travel long distances. Rosie's just arrived and it's raining. About eight months after our Shire's declaration of a climate emergency, I was having a conversation with Rosie Anir, who was running for a seat on local council at the time. It hit me so profoundly. I've been calling it an epiphany, but I'm not sure if that's the right word. I was reading a submission by a woman called Melanie Scaife. Um, and in it she talked about how she was terrified for her young daughter and you know, she runs into other mums and dads in the park. We're brave enough, we'll talk about what's happening and our desperate fears for our children's future. And it was just so great you know, talking about all the things that I do, you know, clutching their keep cups and trying to reduce waste and you know, all the switching our super to ethical funds, all the little things we're doing, but knowing in their hearts that it's not enough. And like even now, just talking about it, I get, I'm getting chills from it because it hit me so profoundly and our vested interest is our children. Made me realise that the reason I haven't looked into climate change a lot and the reason why I haven't done a lot is because I'm so scared that there's nothing we can do. Oh, it was just such a relief to finally identify this barrier. You know, you know when there's something preventing you from, from looking at something closely or for taking a next step, but sometimes you just can't find it. And it's really changed things for me um, because identifying that fear has meant that I can, you know, kind of stare it down a bit and go, it's time for me to do something. I still don't know exactly what to do, but I'm ready to have that conversation with people. Maybe. I mean, I, I sort of think climate change is just... Council like elections were held a couple of weeks later. I was sitting on a park bench with Rosie's dad, waiting for her to come out and tell us the result. I topped the poll. I think I'm pretty set. I think I'm on council. I feel a bit shaky. I better affect your mother because she's probably lurking somewhere. 
Yeah, where is Mum? Oh, yeah, yeah. Mum, she doesn't All cope right. well I'll with be, these things. I'll be back. Councillor Rosie Anir is now helping the Shire community adapt to our rapidly changing world and making decisions that support a safer climate. While we can project the impacts of climate change, what we can't predict is what will happen if we take the crisis into our hearts and hands now. Where the small climate actions we do will end up, like those three school strikers from Castlemaine. Because the ideas and conversations, projects, stories, gestures we put into the world do ripple out and gather momentum in ways we don't expect. And so you can actually make a difference. The idea of the first follower is that you start the movement. I don't have to be the one who knows everything or has the great ideas. As long as when I you know, run into someone who does have a great idea and who does know a lot, I listen to them and I support them and I go, what can I do to help you achieve this thing? Because if I do that, hopefully other people will follow and that's how it gets momentum. When we establish the rights of nature in law, we activate Seeing the, the world through ecocentric lenses. So we need a new vision of what prosperity for humanity looks like in this century. And for this, yes, I offer you a donut. We start local, but it's happening locally everywhere. You know, this is this is what it's about, right? It's about entering into the ecstasy of resistance in community. Dear darkening ground, you've endured so patiently the walls we've built. Perhaps you'll give the cities one more hour. Before you become forest again and water and wilderness, where you take back your name from all things. Oh, just give me a little more time. I just want a little more time because I'm going to love the things. I'm going to love the things as no one has thought to love them. Please tell me if it's too um, warm. I think it's pretty good. What do you think? A lot of people that talk about hope and what that means in terms of active hope where you actually don't maybe know what the outcome is going to be but you're going to give it your best shot anyway. You know, you just, you don't give up. And there's that beautiful quote, pessimism of the intellect but the optimism of the will. And that's what I am. I, I am probably pessimistic intellectually but I'm going to fight with all I've got regardless. I just think about what little piece of the puzzle can I um, contribute to and find a way to effectively block out the rest because I know that if I do this well it's part of a much much larger puzzle that might do something about this you know terrible scientific fact that sits over there that I just don't engage with every day or I just won't be able to function. So your foxes are ready for bed, he's already tucked in. Don't run away, wait, Frankie come back, come on. No enough nonsense Frankie come on. Can you hear the sea? Me. If you put a shell to your ear, you can hear the sea. 
what is helpful is staying with the trouble that we have now. What's happening right before your eyes that you can get your hands on, that's really grounding. But it is still unknown, it is still not written. It, everything we're doing now, what we do in the moment, right now, can influence that future. And it is worth staying present. Pop your feet under <laughs> So welcome to Nonsense Land. You may have heard of it. It's where the trees are red and the grass is blue. <laughs> where dogs wear hats and birds fly backwards. Where some trees are red. Yes, yeah, true. You can get um, trees with red leaves. And this is where little Miss Dotty lived in the middle of Whoopie Wood. I, I just feel that I have no I have no standing. I've no moral and ethical standing to tell my children oh, I was all a bit too hard. Mm. to stay involved. I mean, parenting itself is pretty tough. I <laughs> have three kids and I'm a single mum. So you kind of, you might traipse home from work and think, oh, it'd be so nice to just get McDonald's or just not to do the laundry or not to sit down and check the homework. But it kind of doesn't matter how tired you are. You just have to keep doing it because you, that's what you've signed up for. And it's a similar kind of grit and determination you have to have individually to continue to engage with climate change because not engaging with it doesn't make it go away. And in fact, the only way you manage some of your anxiety about it is by staying involved. You've been listening to Endgame, produced by Kyla Brettel and Rob Law. Original music by Rob Law, audio editing by Kyla Brettel. In the show, you've heard the voices from our town, Melanie Scaife and her daughter Frankie, Rosie Anir, Heather Cummins, Laura Noonan, Bronwyn Matchen, Neil Barrett, Terry White, Dave Petrusma, Stephen Gardner, Milo Albrecht, Christine Kilmartin, Terry Belair, Susie Burke, Veronica Mule, Ian Higgins, Joyce Sanders... Lucinda Young, Laura Leverton, Ant Wilson and Peter Yates. To make the show, we've also remixed, with permission, the voices of Rebecca Huntley on Robert McLean's Climate Conversations, Joanna Macy, courtesy of Old Dog Documentaries and the On Being podcast with Krista Tippett, Sheldon Solomon on Six Months or Less podcast, Robert Gifford on With Good Reason podcast, Charles Massey on The Regenerative Journey with Charlie Arnaud, Dan Siegel, Daniel Vahl, Kate Raworth, Shankar Vedantam and Tali Sharot. We had production support from Jodie Newcomb and Carmen Bunting and editorial advice from Natasha Mitchell, David Carlin and Brian Morris. This episode was produced with support from the Man Alexander Shire's Get Lost Grants and also Adapt Lodden Mallee. For a full list of credits and acknowledgements... Not for the faint-hearted. ...please visit our website, endgamepodcast.net. Where you can check out our short works, follow our audio journal, Seen in the Dark. And track the development of our next show in the series. That's endgamepodcast.net. Endgame is made on Jara country, and we pay our respects to Jar Jar Wurrung elders past, present and emerging. We are grateful for their leadership and care of country that we now belong to and hold dear. Thank you. What's wonderful is that the human race can surprise you. But the kids are a major, major part of my you know, mental yes. well-being. Yes, yes. Yeah, they are. I think that's the the thing about you're not putting hope in them. They just give you a bit of drive to 
Yeah, and especially Strathmore. that it started here in Castlemaine and the Australian mm. leg of it anyway. Mm. Um, which has probably got something to do with the work that was done here 15 to 20 years ago with getting the parents involved.